Entertaining. Cool. You're listening to L.A. Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. I'm certified in EMDR and as a Reiki Level 2 practitioner. I would love to to connect with you as my listener, so please reach out to me through my website, which is NOLA therapy.com n-o-l-a therapy.com it is the abbreviation for new orleans los angeles therapy i have offices in both locations and i do phone skype and facetime sessions with clients all over the world please reach out to schedule a session you may email me lisa at nola therapy and text call whatever is most convenient i'd love to hear from you if you're interested in being a guest on this show, and I ask that you continue to subscribe and rate this show on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio. I have a YouTube channel called NOLA Therapy, and please become a patron to support my work through the crowdfunding campaign I have with Patreon. That link is patreon.com forward slash all things therapy. My guest today, in just moments, we are going to be with Bella Mahaya Carter. Her memoir is total, titled Raw, and if you're at a computer, you can pull up raw, R-A-W, memoir.com. She is also the author of Secrets of My Sex, which is a collection of narrative poems. The memoir we're talking about today is Raw, My Journey from Anxiety to Joy. Bella has a master's in spiritual psychology. She also studied dance at the Juilliard School. She uses creative movement and writing both as a medium for transformation. She is a writing teacher, a developmental editor. She's an empowerment coach and a featured columnist and blogger. Her poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction has been featured in places like Mind Body Green, the Sun, Lilith, Calyx, and Literary Mama. Welcome, Bella. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm thrilled to be here. I am so thrilled to be interviewing today. Like I said before we came live, I really loved your memoir. Thank you. I'm so, so happy to hear that. You're welcome. Where, where do you want to start our listeners on this journey of your development through food, changing the way that you eat, that got you to change the way that you think, and now help others transform their lives? Well, that's a great question because when I started out on this journey, all I knew was that I had chronic stomach problems and I wanted it gone. Mm -hmm. I wanted to feel better. And the only thing my doctor could do for me was prescribe medication. And I knew that the medication would manage the symptoms, but I also knew they wouldn't do anything to help the cause. So I thought to myself, if there's something wrong with my stomach, doesn't it make sense to think about what I put into it? So I went to the bookstore and I came back with an armload of books about health and nutrition and food combining. And, and I discovered that a lot of people were healing a variety of diseases through the raw food diet. 
which seemed pretty extreme to me when I first read about it, but I couldn't deny what, what I was reading. I was seeing pictures of people before and after the diet, and their skin was clear, and their eyes were glowing, and I could just see it, and I also, it, it, it made sense to me. So I decided to give it a try. I kind of worked into it slowly. I started just first reducing sort of junk food from my diet and alcohol, and I just started to juice a lot and eat, eat more healthfully. So that by the time I actually decided to do it, it, it wasn't that big of a shift. And so when I went on the diet, I felt incredible. I had more energy than I'd had in many years. I was a dancer long ago, and I hadn't danced in years, and suddenly I started dancing again, and I needed less sleep. And I had toenail fungus that disappeared, and the lines in my face were going away. And it was like a miracle. I never, I never felt so well-nourished in my life. And I actually was on that diet for five years. Um, somewhere after the first year and a half or so, I, my, I felt like I still had more healing to do. I felt like I was feeling much better. My stomach was feeling uh, better, but I still just sensed that I had more healing to do. So I thought to myself, I, gee, I wonder if there's a mental component to what's going on with my stomach. And I asked myself the question, what would a raw food diet for the mind look like? And that question prompted me to check out a program in spiritual psychology, a master's degree program in spiritual psychology. And what I learned while I was in that program was that so much of my thinking was contributing, was actually sabotaging my health and happiness. And I really didn't know that I was struggling with anxiety until, until we had five family deaths in three years, and I was the executor of my mom's estate, and it was a contentious estate, and I was in the middle of a legal battle, and I developed an anxiety disorder. It was so severe that I was afraid to leave my house. And again, the only thing that my doctor could do for me was offer me medication. And again, I had the sense that, okay, well, maybe that would help manage the symptoms, but, but I really want to understand this so that I can clear it. And that, that, that position or that seeking really sent me on a, a whole other adventure, which which. Had, the adventure had started physically, and then it had gone to mental and emotional, but then it shifted me into this spiritual, some, some mystical experiences occurred that really told me who I am, who we all are. And that was the journey. It started out, the book is divided into three sections, body, mind, and spirit. And at first I thought, well, healing on one level led naturally to the next. And now I realize that, that, that we exist in all of these dimensions simultaneously. Yes. As as you're speaking, Bella, I'm thinking of a couple things, and and one of them is definitely the the quote, "Let food be thy medicine." Was that Socrates? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Thank you. And and that also a, a theme in your book is you leaning into the inner wisdom of your body and what your body was trying to tell you through initially the stomach pains and upsetness, and then later on going to see the gastroenterologist and just not feeling like that was for you and just really leaning in and asking your body what does it need in such an intuitive process that you allowed yourself to to journey on even though a lot of people in your life they didn't seem to be super supportive or or really like digging what you were doing so you had a lot of kind of outer resistance so I think you really also strengthen your own belief in yourself and speaking your voice. Thank you. Uh, it was a challenge. It, it absolutely was a challenge. My father-in-law was born on a farm in Nebraska, and 
you know, didn't even really understand vegetarianism, let alone raw veganism. <laughs> you know, it was such a stretch. Yeah. And I, I do remember one particularly uh, low point at which we were at, we were at visiting my in-laws in San Diego and I was in the hot tub and I was wearing a bikini and in, in a very low moment for my father-in-law, who, whom I love and respect dearly, he made the comment, he said, oh, you better watch out. Your husband might find himself a fleshier gal because I had lost a lot of weight on the diet and I didn't, it wasn't intentional. I wasn't trying to lose weight. I was just trying to get healthy and, and get rid of the pain. But so there were things like that that happened that were very challenging. And uh, most people didn't understand it. And I had to bring my food with me. I, I, a lot of places I went, and that was challenging, too. And I remember Jim's father, your husband's father, apologizing to you for making that comment. Yet still, it was hurtful because at that point, you had already had so many experiences of feeling different. First of all, yourself, like having to figure out this raw vegan diet and then all of the teaching that you did to learn how to prepare food in this way which for our listeners that that the food it's only heated to a certain temperature to to keep it living so i think dehydration was a method you used extensively so the food is still right. alive and that's why it's called raw that it's not cooked like we grill or or bake or or such is that correct just for our listeners to yes that's exactly right and what happens is once you heat food i think it's beyond 115 degrees, somewhere around there, you kill the enzymes, which is the life force in the food. So in other words, if you pick an apple that's not right, that's an unripe apple from a tree and you put it on the counter and it ripens, what makes it ripen is the, is the enzymes. It's the living force of the food. So when I started just putting living food into my body, it was incredibly nourishing and I could feel it on many, many different levels. What I didn't know at that time was that I was dealing with anxiety and what anxiety is is the mind starts to sort of think on overdrive and and in many cases it's very future focused and it's worry focused and we're we're like fish in water we're not really aware of our thinking a lot of the time mm. and so I, I wasn't even aware that my mind was operating in that way and my mind would then create anxious feelings and that kind of thinking creates adrenaline in the body and it creates anxious feelings that are very physical and very uncomfortable. You know, I mean, it, the range of physical symptoms for anxiety was staggering to me. I didn't understand. I didn't, I never knew it until I went, when I was in my anxiety disorder, I found an anxiety therapist mm -hmm. and he gave me a list of all the physical symptoms and also, uh, also emotional uh, symptoms like, like you feel like something terrible is about to happen. But what really surprised me were the physical symptoms. You know, because I, and I had, I, I realized as I was reading that list of physical symptoms, and there were things like, you know, muscle tightness, tension in the chest area, tension or pain in the chest area, you know, feeling like you can't really breathe. Of course, the obvious things like jitters and the, and, and the heart, rapid heartbeat. But I was just amazed as I was looking over that list. I, it, it, I, I looked back over the last 20 years of my life and I thought, wow, you know, there were so many times when I had these symptoms. And I thought there was something physically wrong with me. And I know that people with anxiety sometimes go from one doctor to the next trying to figure out what's wrong with them, and they think it's a physical problem. Right. So it's interesting, I think, the connection between the mind and the body in that respect, and, and, and what, you know, because what I was thinking was, and the way in which my brain was working, I, I was, it was affecting me physically, and I thought there was something physically wrong with me. 
and it was sourced in your mind, in your in your thoughts, which is what you finally came to realize. And then you were able to treat your thoughts and really re revamp, reprogram your your thinking well, and your mindset. Here's what I learned about my thinking, which I think is is really cool, and it's yeah. given me a lot of freedom. So what I've learned is that we can't control the thoughts that come into our head. But what we can do is if we have if we start to sort of slow down and pay attention, we can we can decide whether to grab onto that thought or not. In other words, if we have a thought and and it's not a helpful thought and we're aware that we're having a particular thought, we have a choice. We can just let that thought pass on through because that's what they do. Thoughts are transient. They're temporary. They don't stay stick around. The only thing that allows a thought to stick around is if we invest our belief in that thought. Carolyn May says, investing your belief dollars in that thought. Can you afford to invest your belief dollars in your thought? Because as soon as I believe in the Mm -hmm. thought that I'm having, as soon as I think that's the truth, then I'm engaging with that thought. And that, in the old, I mean, in the old days for me, that could go on and on for weeks, and it just would be a, a, a horrific cycle of anxiety and panic. But now what happens is I understand that my body is a barometer because I still have anxiety because anxiety is a normal human emotion. We all have anxiety. The difference is that that now if I'm feeling anxious in my body or having some of those symptoms, I say, oh, gosh, I must be having a thought storm. I I must be having a lot of scary thinking to make me feel this way. And then I just kind of relax into it, and I know that if I don't engage with the thinking, it's just going to pass. So I don't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. I don't. It's not. It doesn't. It's not a problem because I know. Well, this is just a. You know, I'm feeling this way because of a thought. It's going to pass right through me, and I'm going to be fine. In the past, I would have a scary. I would have an anxious feeling in my body. I. I wouldn't. I. And then I would start to create anxious thinking around the feelings. For example, I feel pressure in my chest, and then I think, Oh my God, I'm going to pass out. And then I would get. You know. Then I would get then the pressure in my chest would get worse, and it was a cycle. Whereas now I just realize, oh, that's, that's how I experience anxiety in my body. So that means, you know, I can slow down a little bit, I can relax, and I can just Breathe. know that that feeling is going to pass and that I'm fine. You know, Bella, one of the illustrations of this that I really liked in your memoir was when you were working with the licensed clinical social worker that helped you I think get a handle and and see the ways you're thinking influenced your emotions was when you described or when he described, um, and this is my paraphrase, like if there was a a person dressed as a chicken standing outside of a building telling you if you go in this building, it's going to fall on your head, like probably 10 out of 10 people would keep walking and not give it any thought. But that's how it's because we don't believe that. And, And it was a really great illustration of the way that we believe a lot of these irrational dressed up like a chicken thoughts that we don't have to, that we don't have to believe in them. We don't have to give them our power or our energy. And I really liked that story. Exactly. And you know, it's funny because when he told me that, I didn't really understand what he was getting at. And even when he explained it to me, I, I mean, I understood it as an intellectual concept, but I didn't understand it viscerally. I didn't, I, it took me a while before I went from, un, until I went from understanding that concept to really practicing that and, and, and really understanding it in, in a visceral way. It took me a while to get it, but it's, I mean, I, but I finally have learned that just because I have a thought 
It doesn't make it true. Right. You know, and also reading your memoir, I had I had been thinking of uh, Louise Hay, Pema Chodron, and then later on you mentioned both of them. So I was like, yes, like you've definitely done the interior work to um, really tap into how we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And can you talk more to our listeners about that? Yeah, so that was a common, so I guess the, the French Jesuit priest, Pierre Del. Jardine, I'm, I'm probably I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but he he was the first person to say that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, and I heard that over and over again in my spiritual psychology master's program, and I completely agreed with it, and I understood it, but I didn't know until maybe a couple of years later when I was going through the anxiety disorder and I was looking for various healing modalities, and I was experimenting with different healing modalities, and I had two experiences that taught me on a visceral level exactly what that means. The first one was a breathwork session, and at the end of the session, I was lying on the table, and I felt very light. My body was tingly, and the next thing I knew, I was speaking. I don't know if it was gibberish or if it was a real language, but the sensation that I had was that I was that an ancient being was speaking through me in a language I didn't understand. And even though I didn't understand the language, if in fact it really was a language, I don't know, mm-hmm. I understood the message. And the message was, do not waste another second of your life in doubt or fear. Mm. And then the second time was a few months later, I was having a Reiki session. And toward the end of the session, I experienced my body as, vibrating molecules. Mm-hmm. I, I did not feel like solid matter. I felt like vibrating molecules. My pores seemed to me that the sensation was that my pores were dilating, and the next minute I knew I was out of my body, existing in multiple dimensions of time and space. I got frightened, and I got back into my body. But I knew, and, 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 I, and I have had other experiences since where I have actually been shown who I really am as a spiritual being living in this human body. And there's a big difference between hearing that and and intellectually saying, yeah, I I believe that. And then it's a totally different thing when you have an experience like that that completely shifts your your frame of reference viscerally. And that that has happened, oh, a handful of times. That's beautiful. It started to become real. Yes. Your spiritual nature yes. started to become... Yes, and sometimes when my life gets really hard, because yeah. we've had some tough stuff happen in the last few years with family, with health issues, and just, just challenging stuff. And sometimes it really helps me just, just to remind myself, you know, this human drama is not all there is. Mm-hmm. This is not what, you know, yes, we're humans, and we suffer, and we struggle, and, and there are things that are challenging, but this isn't all, this isn't the whole picture. You know, there is, I do believe that, I believe that we all have mental health, inherent mental health, and that the only thing that keeps us from it is our thinking. That, that, and that we, go ahead. No, you first, and then I'll say. Yeah, and that, and that there is within me, even in my most desperate, trying, hopeless times, there is a wellspring of light and love. Mm-hmm. And even though I may not be feeling it, the only reason I'm not feeling it is because of my thinking. Yes, that's the only obstacle 
and then to start working with those thoughts and really embrace our perfection as a spiritual being. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. I think for me, um, it's just to try to maintain an awareness of who I really am. You know, because I don't think that it needs to be, that perfection I don't think has to be maintained. I think it is. It just is. And and the only thing, again, the only thing that keeps me from that is, is my thinking mind, which wants to try and control things. It wants to try and, you know, determine outcomes. And that's not really my job. My job is to show up and to try to have an open heart and and then let go. Right. So I, I'm a student in A Course in Miracles, and in reading your book, I had some of the thoughts of passages from A Course in Miracles, and that's what I reference. Our perfection in, in my belief system is because we are unconditionally loved, and here on yeah. Earth, it's it's harder to, to be in touch with that, with people, their personalities, various constructs of culture, society, business, Yet yet through all of that is this unconditional love available to us that that we can touch, that we can be in contact with through whatever spiritual practice we embrace for ourselves. So that's that's kind of my personal reference as I read your book, is, yeah. is hearing some yeah, themes no, that remind me of it's, unconditional love. We're saying love. the same thing, really. We're just using different words exactly. to say the same thing. Yeah. So another theme, Bella, that, that stood out to me, and there were moments when I just wanted to be like, oh, like, come on, like, you're so close with, with seeing, and, and I think it was so visceral for me because it's a journey I've been on in my own life, is, is at some level, it, my sense was that you wanted um, validation from your loved yeah. ones, that this, this yeah. eating yeah. program that was healing your body and your mind was positive, was good, and I just saw at moments almost like a desperation to just be seen as, as yeah. it's okay. And um, yep. can you talk to us about, about that, how you were able or how you still, you know, like could kind of free yourself from that, the struggle of wanting approval and wanting to be acknowledged by others to like give it more to Yeah, yourself? I mean, I, I just, I think I, I lived with that for most of my life. I mean, I, I grew up with this thought that if I wasn't outstanding, I didn't deserve to exist. Well, first of all, that's just a ridiculous thought. <laughs> we all deserve to exist. Yeah. We're here. But the other thing is, who set? You know, who who's the, who gets to determine? Like, who decides if you're outstanding or not? Or, you know, if you're if and first of all, I don't believe that now. I don't believe there's anything is not good enough. I believe that's just the, the trickery, the illusion of the of the ego playing. You know, just I think whenever I and and I'm, I can't tell you that I don't ever feel like I'm not good enough again. But I, I don't live there anymore. Mm-hmm. I used to live in that neighborhood, and I don't live there anymore. But occasionally something will happen, and I'll and that thought will come up. Oh, I'm not good enough. But I realize when that thought comes up, I just know that that's just not the truth. That's not the truth for me. That's not the truth for anyone. So I that's one of those thoughts that I just I don't cling on to anymore. I don't I I can't it can't sucker me in anymore. It can't 
pretend to be the truth because it's not the truth. It's it's just uh, it's fear and fancy clothing. Right. And not even so. And not even such fancy clothing. It's it's just fear parading around trying to get my attention, and it's just not the truth. And and it's, it's not the truth for anybody. And and how we what we accomplish, what we do, that doesn't even that doesn't make us worthy or unworthy of this mm-hmm. human existence that we have. Nobody's up there keeping score. We're all here to learn our lessons, whatever they may be. Yes. And it seemed like the the lessons, one of the lessons for you to learn was to really just believe and love yourself through Absolutely. becoming a, a vegan raw food person. And, and I remember in your memoir, even visiting your, your in-laws, your father-in-law, and, and trying to explain about getting protein from leafy greens, and that you do eat nuts. And you even made an attempt to take out nuts at lunch with him. But then you knew your yeah. body didn't really like nuts at that time of the day. And, and you know, you yeah. put them away, like, just trying to and then I saw in the memoir as well, when you finally started to embrace like this is your life, this is how you need to eat for your health. And you stopped kind of looking for others to yeah. approve and acknowledge. And it seemed like that's when a big shift happened where people did really start to love your food and, yeah. and want to eat it and share it with you. Like it seemed like there was a shift when your consciousness changed about yourself. That is absolutely that is absolutely true. That is so that's such a great point because at, when my awareness shifted, the the people around me behaved differently towards me. When I was looking for approval from everybody, I was getting all kinds of flack. When I finally just was clear about what I needed and what I was doing, people started I never forget, you know, my father-in-law, you know, toward the end of the story, the journey he, I remember we went down to San Diego, and he wasn't feeling well, and he said something like, gosh, maybe I should eat like you. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's acknowledgement. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, yes, I do, think, I do think that we create much of our experience, and I don't say that in a blaming way. We, we innocently create our experience. But so much, of what our own, so much of our own thinking, which creates our feeling and our behavior, it's, it's, it's creative, it's alive, and, and, and we, our experience derives from that. Yes. Let's take a quick pause here, Bella, for a quick commercial break, and I'll be right back with you. Okay. Indeed, listening is the new reading. With Audible, you can listen to an unlimited amount of books at home, in your car, at the gym, anywhere on the go. With over 180,000 audiobooks to choose from, for you, the listener of all things therapy, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download and a month-long subscription for you to try them out. Visit audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy now and enjoy. Do you want to help yourself and friends find a purpose in life? Then you are in the right place and be a part of the crowdfunding campaign of patreon.com forward slash all things therapy with Lisa Tahir as she initiates a one-on interaction with inspiring authors, healing experts, and spiritual directors. Join the League of Heroes of this generation by contributing your quota between a dollar up to a hundred dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash all things therapy. Let's make the world free of suicide, poverty, depression, and in all, make the world a better place for everyone. You are listening to my interview today with author Bella Mahaya Carter. We're discussing her memoir entitled Raw, 
My Journey from Anxiety to Joy. So, Bella, right before the break, in our discussion of, I think, self-acceptance and and our personal journeys and, and stories, and I've found that life kind of helps us address our areas of vulnerability or even weakness, so to speak. And I saw in your story just the you finding your voice and expressing your voice through the way that you needed to change your relationship to food, which changed your relationship to yourself and then with others, that like you really leaned in to that as hard as it was. And your husband seemed to be really supportive through this. Can you talk some about your your husband, Jim, and your daughter, Helen, and what this was like for you all as a family to go through? Well... Uh, you know, in terms of my husband, Jim, I, I have to say that I, I don't think I've ever met a, a kinder... We, we've been married for 35 years and and lived together for five years before we were married. So we've been together since college. And he's just a, he's a very kind, generous, thoughtful, respectful person. And he has, you know, he from the very beginning, he didn't question what I was doing. He just said, you know, do what you need to do. He trusted me. He trusted me to follow my own instincts. And and so I, it really wasn't, I didn't, it wasn't difficult. I mean, I, I, you know, if I could have, I would have liked to have cleared the whole pantry out. But I knew that, you know, they get rid of the junk food that, that he and Helen were eating. But I knew that this wasn't, I, I wasn't on, I wasn't trying to convert people. I was just trying to heal myself. So... Yeah, I mean, and I don't, and I don't even say to people like you should be a vegan or you should eat. And I, I don't tell what I, what I like to tell people is follow your wisdom. You know, a lot. There's a lot. There's there. Sometimes we have difficulty distinguishing between signal or source and noise. And there can there can be a lot of noise in our heads, and it's easy. And the noise is all that egoic stuff. All the all the those thoughts that aren't helpful, but they're maybe repetitive or habitual. But there is also wisdom in, in all of us. And so if, if I had any message at all, I would say, follow your wisdom. And what, and what my, my wisdom and what's right for me may not be what's right for you. So I think Jim understood that. And, um, you know, sometimes I prepared two different meals. Sometimes I prepared a meal for them and a meal for me. And, you know, sometimes Jim did the cooking and sometimes Helen did the cooking. So... So we all just lived together peacefully. I mean, you know, of course we had the normal family stuff that every family has, but but it really wasn't an issue in in my immediate family. Yeah, I thought it was very cool that you didn't impose upon your household the way that you discovered you needed to eat and take care of your body, that everyone could do as they needed to. I thought that was really beautiful and well done. Thank you. Thank you. I felt strongly about that. I felt like this is, this is my journey. Although, you know, there there probably were times when I when I maybe rolled my eyes when I watched my husband, you know, eating a bag of potato chips <laughs> or you know, <laughs> drinking beer in front of the T V or whatever, you know. I mean I'm not I'm not a saint, so I'm sure that there were times when I just, you know, had had my own judgments and rolled my eyes, but but essentially people just eat what they want and you know, around in this household. Right. You know, so there's, in thinking about the title of your book, Raw, I know I heard in an interview with you, and I thought it was interesting that you had an initial title, and then the publisher wanted it to be changed. Can you talk to us about that and how anxiety 
became a part of the title and your initial feeling yeah. about that? Yes, yes, that's a great question. So uh, I have been working on this book for five years and working with, with a fantastic editor, Brooke Warner, and she's also the publisher of She Writes Press. And the subtitle was A Midlife Quest for Health and Happiness, and that just organically grew out of the years of, of working together and the, the book, and it seemed like the right title. And then after the book came back, I, probably your listeners may not be familiar with advanced reader copies, but basically you the publisher orders, say, 100, 150 advanced reader copies and then sends them out to various media outlets for reviews so that when your book actually is published, the, the reviews are already in. So we already had my advanced reader copies, and my publisher says, uh, I had a meeting with the sales team, and they, they don't like your subtitle. They want the word anxiety in the subtitle. And this really was an 11th-hour subtitle change, and, and we... My editor and another editor and I, we all brainstormed, and I finally came up with my journey from anxiety to joy. And at first, I felt really uneasy about it. Well, the first thing I said to my publisher was, I don't want to misrepresent my book. I want mm-hmm. to make sure that, that, you know, the, that, that I deliver on that subtitle. And she said, well, I think the book absolutely delivers on that subtitle. But then the second piece was, I found that when, people, when strangers would say to me, what's your book? What's your book? Mm. I would say it was different to say raw, a midlife quest for health and happiness versus raw, my journey from anxiety to joy. Because in fact, I hadn't even at that time, even after I'd written it, even after we had the advanced reader copies, I really didn't realize I'd written a book about anxiety. Interesting. Um, it, was, it was very interesting because a, a, an author friend of mine said, Oh, your book is, your book, I said, you know, is it clear to you what my book is about? And she said, oh, yeah, it's about your anxiety, it's about your desire to heal your anxiety even before you knew you had anxiety. And and so it was a really interesting thing because I wrote the book and I didn't realize I'd written a book about anxiety. And, and so it was scary to say my journey from anxiety to joy, what what it forced me to do was own, really own yes. what's been going on for so long that I, I mean, obviously when I had the anxiety disorder, I knew I had anxiety, but I didn't, I didn't really recognize that anxiety really has been in play for a long time, that anxiety was at least, con- I mean, I, I, at least contributing to my stomach problems. I won't say it was completely responsible for my stomach problems, you know, because when I started to eat differently, my stomach felt better. But it didn't cure me completely. And so I think it was more subtle than that. I do think, but I definitely think that anxiety played a role in in my chronic stomach problems, no question. And you learned, I I read a portion of, I think it might be towards the end of the memoir, that learning what you eat, when you eat, who you even eat it with, just contributes to your emotional well-being as well. Yes. Just the interconnection Ab- of mind absolutely. and body. Absolutely. Absolutely. All of those things matter. All of those things. It's, it's so subtle, but these things are, like I said earlier, these things are all connected. It's not, they're not separate. Body, mind, spirit are, are not separate. We're existing in each moment with all of those things in play. And sometimes we're not, we don't know what, what's coming from where. But I, I definitely noticed that, um, that what I eat and how I eat it and with whom affects, affects how I feel. Yes. And the title Raw, I think, is just so 
perfect because food is emotional. Typically, food brings people together at the table. Food is something a lot of people, I'm from New Orleans. So in New Orleans, um, often we'll have lunch and then you start talking about, oh my gosh, where are we going for dinner? Because there's so many great restaurants and chefs that that food is part of my culture, being from New Orleans more than maybe, maybe a lot of the United States. And so I really get just the emotionality around food and and what we're eating, it can bring such pleasure and delight. And for you to really have to change the whole way that you approach food, I think could cause anxiety, even if it wasn't there before, yeah. <laughs> to learn to dehydrate and and just the labor intensiveness of, of some of the dishes that you pre- prepare, yeah. taking days to sprout. And I mean, the food, yeah. it sounded so beautiful and delicious. It just must have been overwhelming to have to learn to, to cook in this way or not cook. Yeah, it was a huge learning curve. And in fact, when I did this, when I started it in 2004, there were no prepared raw foods at Whole Foods Market and other markets. Now, I mean, I live in Los Angeles. I think you, well, you part, partially live in Los yes, Angeles. Yes, yes. So, so now there's just a proliferation of, of these foods. I mean, I can buy flaxseed crackers at Whole Foods. Yes, yeah, they're and, expensive, yeah. but... You know, I mean, I used to make every. I had to make everything because it just simply wasn't available, and because I wanted variety in my diet, I didn't want to just eat, you know, fruits and vegetables. I wanted, uh, you know, some of the gourmet raw foods. But I made ice cream, and I made pizza, and I made cheeses and spreads, and you know, all kinds of things. But, and you know, I started out. I just kind of. I did it over five years, so I learned gradually. Um, and it wasn't any harder than cooking. I actually kind of liked it better than cooking. And but the big the biggest thing was how I felt. I just felt so good eating that way that and I felt light and I felt clear and I felt ener- energized. You know, it was it was really good. But then finally, I remember I interviewed Rod Rotundi, who had he was the owner of Leaf. He's a chef, and his grandfather was from Italy. And I mean, talk about you know. I came from a huge, my mom was an incredible Italian cook. Yes. And food, you know, I think food is important in a lot of cultures. I, you know, I think food is about survival. It's just so primary, and it's, mm-hmm. it's made such a big deal. And I, I found it interesting how people, you know, seem to be threatened because I was eating differently. Cause, uh, but that, that's sort of a, another story. And I'm just trying to, I just lost my train of thought. About your Where mom being a, a, an Italian, uh, you talk about your mother being this amazing cook, and and you're from an Italian family, and um, yeah, it was really. I was I was I was trying to get to something else, but I don't remember what it was. But yeah, I mean, my mom was an amazing cook, and I mean, I always felt oh, I always liked I always liked working with with raw foods better. Anyway, my husband's a really good cook, and so a lot of times he would do the cooking, and I would do the salads, and um, I always enjoyed that. And I, and I never, and I, I mean, like, I couldn't eat the way, I mean, like, like if I, when I think back to the meals that we had, you know, they were they, like holiday meals and even not, you know, even like just on the weekends when she would invite people over, you know, there would be some sort of antipasto, which would be, you know, like prosciutto and, you know, the, an assortment of cheeses and, and meats and olives and, and then there would be the pasta dish and then there would be the meat dish and then there would be the homemade dessert. Wow. You know? <laughs> like, wow. I know. You know, there's a dinner, know. there's a dinner party you describe in your memoir where where you and your husband invited some old friends over, and you did a combination of say I think it was like Cornish hens that he prepared, and then you did raw 
food and yeah. the dessert you made, when I think about it, my mouth starts salivating. It had to do with <sighs> like banana, b- banana that you yeah. softened. Um, yeah, it was crepes. It was a oh recipe from Alyssa amazing. Cohen's book, uh, Living on Live Food, and it was crepes. And the way I made the shells was I first I liquefied banana, and then I dehydrated it so that it came out as sheets, like sheets of banana. Yes. And then I cut them up into strips, and then I made w- with with macadamia nuts, cashews, and lemon juice, oh. and a little bit of vanilla extract. I think I made a, a like a filling for the crepe, and I rolled it up in the banana leather, and then I made a berry sauce, probably strawberries and raspberries combined, maybe a teeny bit of agave or honey, I don't remember. Um, And then I just um, put the the sauce over the crepes and then decorated it with fresh berries and put it in the refrigerator, and and it made the banana leather soften. Oh, wow. And, you know, the two of the guests, one of the couples that came to that dinner party she grew up in the Napa Valley, and her parents had a winery, and so they were real foodies. And her husband is a surgeon who grew up in the Pacific Palisades, who also his mother was an artist, and also another big foodie. Actually, everybody that night who came to the party, they were all foodies. And he just like ate that dessert, and so I'll never forget Nick saying, this is the best dessert I've ever had. Wow. And his wife saying, that's, you know, that's, that's high praise. And the thing that's so cool about the raw desserts is that it's just pure nutrition. There's nothing in there that's depleting the body, breaking down the body. There's no refined sugar. You know, there's no flour. It's just all, it's all basically fruit and, and nuts. So my secret hope, Bella, was as I got to the end of your memoir that there would be a location for your food truck or a restaurant so I could come and eat your food. It was just so <laughs> amazing to read about the things that you prepare. So have you ever that's, thought that's, have you ever thought of that, like doing something like that? Well, you know what, Lisa? It's funny. I don't know. You probably don't remember this. It's a little detail. But that night at the dinner party, I think maybe it was Nick who said, you know, gosh, you should order. You should open a raw food restaurant. Yes. Because this food is so good, but that was never my calling. Right. I never felt like I actually remember feeling sad that night because I, I always, I, you know, I, I felt like a, I'm an artist, I'm a writer. I, I know now also that I'm a healer. I think we all are. Some of us express it more readily than others. But it, I didn't feel like. In fact, when I first wrote the outline for this memoir and um, shopped it around. People wanted me to be a raw food expert, mm. and and I I'm I don't feel like I'm really here. I mean, if someone wants to have a conversation with me about raw food and about how to prepare something, I I'm happy to do that. But I feel like that's not what I'm here to teach. Mm-hmm. I'm I, I feel like I'm more of a spiritual teacher and also a, a facilitator for creative expression. Yes, I and see that too in you. That, absolutely. Yeah. So that's kind of like that's 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 what I'm here to teach. And you know, and the rest of it is just nice but it's it's not I don't feel driven to be a raw food educator. Right. You know, this this point you're bringing up, I definitely wanted you to speak to our listeners about the way you call yourself a recovering perfectionist. Can you share <laughs> a little of that with us? Yeah. I mean, I think for so long I was just and I think that this was actually kind of foundational and feeding and fueling the anxiety was this feeling that I always had to be perfect that I had to do everything under promise, over deliver, 
I had to I had to be great at everything I did, and there really wasn't a lot of room for error. And 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 that kind of sensibility I now understand is all fear. It's all about fear. It's like, what if I don't measure up? What if I'm not good enough? And and that you know the other piece of that is, what if I am not lovable? What if nobody loves me? What if I'm mm-hmm. alone? What if I'm poor? What if what if what if? And it just goes on and on. And so, I I think that 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 thought, you know, those thoughts really fueled the anxiety. And I, I, I that's a great, Elizabeth Gilbert, I think, somebody, some great quote, I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert, and maybe, maybe in Magic, the book, that book, Magic, she said something like, you know, fear is, is, is I don't remember her exact words, but it was this idea that fear is just like, that, that, Perfectionism is fear in fancy clothes and high heels and a fancy. Actually, I wrote that down. Yes, it was. You talk about Elizabeth Gilbert in that. In that yeah, quote, another so I interview. think it was yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert, and I, I really resonated with that because I didn't understand that I was so afraid, that I was just terrified of not measuring up. And you know, I think actually it's just been such a good thing to put this book in the world because. It's, you know, it's easy to have expectations, especially around something like a book. And what I'm learning how to do, which is such a relief, is rather than bemoan whatever opportunities don't come my way, to really celebrate and feel good about the connections that I'm making and the good reviews that I'm getting and this and that. You know, like, like there's a lot of great stuff. It's not, it's not all perfect, but there's a lot of great stuff. Yes. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of letting go of, of that, that, that idea of, of perfect because I do think that fundamentally and foundationally we are perfect. Mm -hmm. Even, even, you know, even if like the table is missing a fork or (laughs) my, you know, my, even if, if there's like my nail is chipped or some silly, you know, superficial outward thing that thing, outward thing that used to seem so important, like how I would show up at my in-laws house or, you know, just, Silly things that we focus on these silly. I mean, I know I did. I focused on these silly, silly little banal things that, you know, seemed important, but but really, and it's because it's all about fear of being judged. Because mm-hmm. I'm judge, I was judging myself so harshly. Yes, yes, that's why I just loved your memoir. These beautiful themes about about self forgiveness, self acceptance, really standing in our own authenticity and speaking our voice. All of that came through in, in raw. Oh, thank you. I'm really, I'm so that just happy to hear that. Really happy to hear that. Cause I really wanted to just share my experience. Not because not mostly because I know that when I read memoirs, what I'm really looking for is, is, is support and assistance in navigating my own journey. And I think people read memoirs, especially memoirs written by people who are not famous. People read them because they want to see themselves reflected in the pages. They mm-hmm. want to, they want insights into how to heal themselves or to you know live their lives or just navigate the, this this journey they're on. Yes, Bella, thank you for being my guest today. I have enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's just been a pleasure to speak with you. You are welcome. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That concludes my show today with Bella Mahaya Carter, author of Raw. 
My Journey from Anxiety to Joy, a memoir. Thank you for listening as always, and please tune in next week as I bring you another guest. I hope everyone has a fantastic week. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir.